Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. What a happy song for such a depressing movie. I really, really do love this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Today, we are discussing 1917, the brilliant war epic directed by Sam Mendes. This movie blew us away. We're here to talk all about it, and the way we're going to be organizing this week's episode is uh, by basically structuring it in a format of these two soldiers trying to get from point A to point B, and what obstacles were in their way that prevented them or delayed them from accomplishing that mission. Later, we're also going to analyze whether or not they were successful in completing their mission, because that is up to debate. And keep in mind, guys, that this is going to be a spoiler-filled review, so if you haven't seen the movie, highly, highly recommend you check this movie out. It is killing it at the box office. It's up for 10 Oscar nominations. It's already won in the Golden Globes nominations, Um, so you guys have to check this out. With that being said, I'm your host, Mina Nadine, and to my left, I am accompanied by Tara Erickson. Hi, guys. Who really does understand the ins and outs of filmmaking because you are in front of the camera as an actor. You also bring comic relief because you do have that (laughs) comedy perspective uh, and you understand the writing process as well. So I'm very, very eager to see what you have to say about this film. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. What were your initial thoughts of 1917? Okay, well, I didn't do any research before I saw this film, so I was watching it and just being like, they haven't cut yet. They haven't cut yet. Like, is this going to be that type of movie? Because I just, I didn't know who directed it, who was the DP. Like, I didn't look at it at all. And um, I wasn't distracted by it, but, like, my jaw was just like, oh my god like how did they do this like how is this possible with all of these people and moving the camera like 360 degrees and then they keep going um i just a phenomenal piece of art first of all but you obviously have to have phenomenal actors to carry that through um because there's no cuts and so you i believed their performance from the beginning to the end and that's with them just like going through it like it's a play except you get to be up close and personal which in a theater you don't get that um and i think that's what makes this film super special i want to echo every sentiment you just said because i completely agree with that and it's so funny because going into this film the first time around because i did see this film twice i loved it so much that i had to see it a second time loved it even more the second time but the first time around i was like okay 1917 am i really gonna enjoy a movie about world war one i mean yeah we haven't had a ton of movies about world war one obviously we've had a ton about world war ii and the vietnam war and the iraq war more recently but we haven't had a lot about world war one and world war one is arguably one of the most grueling wars because of trench warfare and because of the lack of technology that they had in World War II, and then obviously now in the modern day, that made it much easier to communicate with each other. Um, You know, obviously, 
this was considered the war to end all wars. Mm -hmm. Going into this, I was like, I I don't want a history lesson. This is going to be, I don't know if this is going to be boring. You know, it's going to be the kind of movie that's going to win a bunch of awards uh, because it's just beautiful to look at. It really is a masterpiece. And then I kept thinking, oh, the one take shot, like the the look of that, I wonder what that's going to be like. Um, And I was wondering if it was going to be gimmicky or not. And when I first started watching it, I'll admit that it did feel like I was watching a video game in the beginning and it was a little distracting because I kept thinking about the one take shot and I kept thinking, how are they doing this? Are they really going to do this for the entire movie? There's no way that they can keep this up the entire movie. But then there came a certain point in the story where I just immersed myself in the story and I completely even forgot about the one take shot. Mm-hmm. And then when it was all over, I was like, how did they do that one take shot? I know they had about 40 cuts in between, but that was something that really is a huge feat technically. And it stood out to me the most when I watched this movie. So overall, I would say I love this movie because of the technical aspect of it, the cinematography. The story um, is very simple in my opinion, but it still works because everything else that comes together, the music, the editing, everything else is so fantastic that I don't feel like you have to have a crazy story in order to make this work. Um, And I do want to preface this by saying that uh, the story is based off of stories uh, that Sam Mendes' grandfather told him. So obviously there's going to be some exaggeration. It's not just one story. It's a bunch of random stories pieced together. Um, So we don't know if this happened, but we do know that World War I was pretty intense. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's really interesting when we when we look at um, how it starts out with like horses and carriages, and then later on you start to see like tanks that are thrown over, meaning they were just starting to advance into more um, uh, more advanced weaponry. Um, but it came towards the end, so it's like World War One was the war that sort of changed how war was going to work, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is so weird. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think like in what you said in, in regards to just, you're, you're so immersed in following the two character stories, like after the first 10 minutes, you're just like, oh, the film is, is really great and looking at it, but you're like, I hope this, these boys make it. And that's really what you want in a movie is to be engaged and like enthralled and like care about them. Yeah. Um, and I did. So that's a plus. I did too, and I feel like normally I feel so desensitized and removed from stories like this. Mm -hmm. And I think what was great is that they didn't use actors that were super recognizable, and they did that intentionally. I mean, obviously you have very recognizable figures that are playing smaller roles, like Colin Firth in the beginning, and then obviously Benedict Cumberbatch in the end is Colonel McKenzie. Uh, But I do want to quickly read off what the plot says on IMDb, just so that you guys know, (laughs) just to refresh your memory. Uh, So the story's plot uh, centers around World War I, and it says, During World War I, two British soldiers, Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake, receive seemingly impossible orders. In a race against time, they must cross over into enemy, enemy territory to deliver a message that could potentially save 1,600 of their fellow comrades, including Blake's own brother. So, the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. You know, his brother's on the other side, but there's also 1,600 lives at stake. There's already so much death and destruction going on. Like you said, you see the dead horses, you see dead dogs later on, you see 
giant rats. <laughs> you see mm-hmm. all sorts of filth, squalor, destruction, rubble, um, just to illustrate the the despair of the situation. How, you know, like, even at the very end, this is going to be a war that's fought until the last man is standing. I mean, why? For mm-hmm. what? Like, you're in no man's land, that's what they call it, and that's the territory that belongs to neither the German, uh, the Germans or the Brits, and they're, what, killing each other for more land, for more territory? It just doesn't make sense. Um, and it, you just, like, really get a sense of the futility of war in watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you think about the storyline of this being like, okay, these two soldiers have to get from point A to point B to deliver a message under these grueling circumstances, and obviously there are obstacles along the way that are going to hinder their progress. Mm-hmm. Did you think it was a captivating storyline? I did, only because you're scared for these two boys that are off on their own with, like, no backup. And initially, you can even see it in their faces of, like, um, okay, because, like, they're commanded to do this and go off on their own, which is scary. And they don't know if they're actually at the ready and there. Um, You know, they told them, like, oh, they've cleared off, they've went away. But you're like, I don't know, the enemy could be right there and I die instantly. Mm -hmm. Um, You could read it in their faces, which I thought was really interesting, that they were actually scared. Um, And to see them move through from being scared to being like, maybe we'll actually make it is... um, there's a really big rush that I got when they were able to set off the flare where I was like, oh, then they're going to know that they've they've crossed the line, you yeah. know, which um, I don't know. There's a lot of moments in this where you're just like, yeah, um, silently inside of just like, I'm glad that they're making it. But you you have an anxiety as well. It's a combo mm-hmm. of love for how far they've gotten, but anxiety from the situation because it's shot so up close and personal. Right. Um, it really pulls you into, like, what's going on. You really feel like you are going over a bridge and you have to jump over to make it while being shot at. And you breathe like war when you're watching this movie. Um, it's just, it's really intense. It really is. I I really, for a big part of it, it, it felt like I was watching Call of Duty mm-hmm. and like following along, but like a really intense, elaborate Call of Duty with incredible performances. Um, and Sam Mendes did make a comment about how he was inspired by, you know, watching video games and seeing like how immersive they are and wanting to create that same immersive feel in a movie. And that's what I loved about it. Um, so I do want to start out with setback number one. Uh, that kind of delayed them in their mission to reach the end. And that was the planted grenade in the German bunker. What an intense scene Mm -hmm. where where they're going. They notice that the German soldiers aren't there. They're trying to figure out where they went. They notice that they're not that long gone because they see some fire burning up in this uh, bin. Mm -hmm. Then they go into the bunker and they see a giant rat and they finally start piecing things together and realize that there's a grenade on the floor and the rat activates the grenade. Everything explodes, rubble everywhere. The bunker is being destroyed. And I kept thinking, damn, these Germans are so brilliant. Like they're masterminds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They set a nice trap. What were you feeling in those moments watching that? I was so tense. I was, 
I, I didn't think that they were going to make... I didn't think one of the guy that was underneath the rubble was going to make it. Right. Showfield was gone in my eyes. I was mm-hmm. like, this is done. It's going to be Blake's mission now. It's so funny how the tables turned and reversed later on. Yeah, I think it really showed their commitment to each other and, like, their brotherhood in the fact that he was like, I, I have to save you. Like, wake up. You have to get up. Like, he had to physically, like, yell at him. I was like, he is close to punching him, which is exactly what you would do to, like, save your friend's life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, yeah, I do think that it showed uh, that trust initially when he has to jump and he can't see what he's even doing. He can't even see where he's going. He's just like, trust me, you got to jump. I'm like, I don't know if I would be able to do that. Because it's so scary if you just think if you're, like, blind and you're like, I'm going (sighs) to jump. Can I even jump that far? How far is this gap that we're talking about? And then when he gets over, um, you know that, like, from then on out, they're basically, like, brothers. Mm-hmm. They're not just, um, you know, buddies, like, trying to fight a war together. They're they're, yeah. they're brothers now. I love when he's like, I should have just shot that damn fat rat if yeah. I knew this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And when he, like, started uh, watering, like, putting water on his eyes to clear the, the dust, I was like, why couldn't they have done that earlier? Like, was that even an option earlier? Or were they just so frantic that they forgot about that? Because I kept thinking, do something so you can see. If you don't see, that it's going to be impossible to escape. Right. I was so shocked they even escaped. And then they come to the next scene, and you just see, like, all these shells of the different um the different weapons like on the floor and it, it's just crazy to look at mm-hmm. um but the second you know the second setback with all of this was the german soldier in the crashing plane yeah that you really felt like you were drawn into that when the plane is coming right at you and you're like what are they going to do who's in there is it a german is it an Amer- is it a brit and um, you realize it's a German and they're trying to save him. And I was a little confused. I was like, okay, so there is some humanity in this war. That's nice that they're trying to save him. I discussed this movie with my dad and he's like, no, like the German probably stabbed him because he didn't want to be a prisoner of war Mm -hmm. because that could have been another alternative. I never interpreted it that way. I saw it as like these two soldiers having some humanity and empathy left in them where they just wanted to save a fellow human being you know, divisions of country and allegiance aside. Yeah, I feel like, uh, number one, when I saw the plane thing coming in, it reminded me of Waterworld, which if you guys haven't seen Waterworld at Universal Studios, like, that's what happens. Yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, I felt when he crashed that the guy must be disoriented in a certain way, and he might just be scared and not knowing, like, who is this uh, and what should I do? And I probably would just like fight back too i'd probably be like get away from me everyone Mm -hmm. um in a state of like shock and fear and you're in the middle of war and i mean he doesn't see them with the same type of uniform on so of course he would kill him i don't know that he even uh registered that um it's not showfield i forget the other guy's name blake blake thank you that um blake would was even saying get him water like let's help him out i Mm -hmm. think that Gosh, I can't imagine how quickly time would go by if you were in that um, circumstance. Um, But yeah, I mean that or prisoner of war or he's just like, I don't know, die, die so that I don't die. But, you know, so that's so interesting. I never even saw it that way. For some reason, I kept seeing it as he knows that they're trying to help him. But Mm -hmm. he's like his allegiance to his country, Germany, is so strong that he's like, no, I don't care if he's trying to help me. I'm going to stab him anyway, because 
these were the instructions I was given for my country. I totally interpreted it in that way, but I love your interpretation because I was like, I completely forgot about like, you know, the shell shocked aspect of it and the disorientation and the fear. I like, obviously that had to have been going through his mind too. So I don't know why, like I immediately thought, Oh, like, why help someone who's going to stab you in the front? Right, yeah. I know. But he did talk, so he was a well aware. I don't yeah. know what he was saying. He was mumbling words. Who can hang an often shut and shut? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I kidding. have no idea. But yeah, I mean, it could be a combo of both. But that's a, a little bit where my brain went initially. Yeah, totally. Um, the scene where, you know, you don't fully see the stabbing because of the way the camera is angled, which I thought was brilliant. Um, that you just kind of, like, see it after it happens mm-hmm. while it's coming out. Um, the the split second that, that Schofield turns to get water is when this all happens, which just tells you that a second makes such a huge impact in war. Like, that's the fragility of life, is one second is everything. Um, and that was such a painful scene to watch, just knowing that, in a second, everything could have been different. If he didn't get the water, everything could have been different. If they didn't stop when the plane was there, like any like second could have made a difference um, between life and death. And I think that moment where the the color is leaving Blake's face was so powerful. It was like, how is he turning white? How are they doing this in a single shot? Like I kept trying to think about like the movie magic behind it. But it was such a deep emotional impact when Blake says, am I dying? And Schofield looks at him and just says, yes. And I just started bawling in that moment. I was, I, I couldn't control my emotions at that point. I was like, this is so powerful. I can't handle this right now. I don't even want to look. And everyone in the theater was just so tense and quiet and I felt it. And everyone's like, oh, this is, this is tough. Yeah. Um, what were you thinking? It's almost as though he has to remove his, like, love for humans. Blake, uh, when you think about it, uh, remove himself from the humanity of saving a life. Uh, remove your love for humanity to survive. Overall, like, the message to me, the metaphor is, like, you cannot have emotions. You can't care about anybody when it when it comes to war because you'll just end up dying. Mm-hmm. Um Sadly, that's, you know, that's what happened. He he cared. He could have just killed him. I mean, Schofield's initial was like, cool, let's just let's take care of him. Let's kill him. But there was something, you know, within Blake that he just couldn't let go, which is why Blake didn't even think about his own life when he charged off to go tell his brother. It was Schofield was like, listen, dude, maybe we should get some backup. Like, what's going on here? And he was like, I don't care. You know, I have to go save my brother. So his character really carried over that he really just cares about people in general. I think more so he he wasn't, um, I guess, as bitter from the war as maybe other people would, which is why I found it interesting that they sent, that he's one of the characters. That's a trait right. in him that is not very present in, in Schofield um, as much as Blake. Blake is just sort of that kid who's just like, no, I mean, people still matter. I know we're at war, you know. Yeah. But that's the that mentality in war is what ended up getting him hurt. And I think, you know, those two characters are perfect foils to each other because just as, you know, he seems like to be a little bit more emotional, he also, you know, Blake is the one who tells the stories and, mm-hmm. you know, he's the one with the animated personality and he's a little softer. You can tell he's pushed around a bit more, even in the beginning scene in the trenches. Like, he's kind of this short, stocky guy 
and the guy's like, hey, where are you going? And then Schofield has to kind of come in and, and be like, no, like, don't touch him, get away. Um, and he shows less emotion, I would say. Uh, and I, I thought the most interesting, like, difference between them was when they're talking about, like, the badges of honor and the ribbons you receive as a result of heroic efforts during the war. Like, their reactions to that really demonstrated the core root of their differences in personality, you know, whereas Blake really cares about, you know, being valiant and honorable and like, oh, but this badge means so much. Like, who wouldn't want a badge? Everybody wants a badge. And Schofield just being like, why? Like, it doesn't mean anything to me. Like, the only thing that keeps running through my mind is like when I left my family's house and they may never see me again. It's the one scene where you see him almost get emotional and choked up a bit. And then he has to come back to reality and say, I have a mission. This is what I'm going to do. And I just thought it was so interesting, just like that idea of like validation and the whole idea of like having a ribbon or a badge of honor for your efforts in a war that is demonstrated like we're seeing right in front of our eyes the futility of war how it means nothing how it's the war to end all wars but there's all this destruction what's a badge gonna do we even have a character in the beginning of the movie say who cares about a badge when you go home to a widow that was super powerful for me too um but yeah moving on to the next setback in the story um i would say the sniper in the house was a huge setback uh, and that was the scene in which uh, Schofield is crossing the bridge after seeing that whole group of people right around the corner uh, in that house that they were near and he crosses the bridge and then he gets shot at and what a tense moment let's talk about it yeah I mean the way that was shot like I said earlier that specifically was ingrained in my in my brain of like I feel like I have to make it over this bridge right now and I was stressing um and uh, it was so interesting just to see one sniper be firing at him because initially I was like, oh, man, like he's got to die right here. I mean, unless it's only one guy, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting to watch. Just like two people, you know, fighting it out where he has to be super smart about it. Move when like maybe the guy is, you know, reloading. Like all those things are like running through my mind of just like you have to be trained in this scenario and like. Uh, which he which he is, and it was just interesting to see just the movements on his face because you really just stay on him the whole time, even as he goes through the house looking for where this guy could be, and he's a little bit fearful, but, like, he's got to take care of it because it's just him. I mean, he made the choice to, like, leave that whole group of people behind and be like, I'm never going to make it in time. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's ride or die, baby. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was... I thought it was really cool and realistic in in regards that he got hurt he's not like you know lasting the whole time going Mm -hmm. through like i'm just gonna (laughs) pop people real easy because i'm like the lead soldier um yeah he got hurt pretty badly you know he was knocked out and then you know regained consciousness which i was like oh that's like another cut because i think it went to black and then back up but Mm -hmm. you still don't realize it still feels like one take but i found that um really interesting because you're just like wait what are you gonna do now yeah Uh, you've lost time and that's there's a ticking clock but like that you're thinking about the entire time watching this is is he going to make it in time by dawn and and you know it's funny that you said is he just gonna like go through every obstacle seamlessly and like how's he getting through this far and i just kept thinking like 
yeah, this is the same director who directed Skyfall, one of the James Bond films. Mm-hmm. Like, in those movies, obviously, like, James Bond is, like, indestructible, and he there's, like, 20 guys, and he's just, like, killing all of them and doing all these stunts. And it's very unrealistic, superhero-esque. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with this, I kept thinking, okay, so this is not realistic. Like, there's got to be a point in which he just can't anymore, or, like, his leg gets blown off or something happens. And so the the scene in which everything cuts to black because I, I guess when he fired at the sniper and the sniper fired back, I, I think he got a concussion or something mm-hmm. because he got hit in the head in the back. I don't know how that happened. There's blood coming out from here when he's getting shot from the front. I didn't understand the logistics of that. But yeah, he was knocked out. And when he wakes up, it's dark. And in that moment, I kept thinking this entire movie up to this point has been happening in real time except for the blackout scene, where we have no idea how long he was blocked out for. It's not like they're going to do the blackout scene in real time, where it's just it fades to black and just stays there for like 10 minutes. But I was like, that has to have been like a couple of hours that have elapsed, because, you know, from going from sunrise to sunset, and like I just kept thinking, like, how much time? How much time is left? And the fact that you don't know what time it is, and he doesn't figure out the time, and until he wakes up and runs into the lady mm-hmm. with the kid, with the baby, after he's trying to escape from a German soldier in the burning church area. There's so much going on. It's so hard to even explain and summarize because there's so much that happens visually that to put in words takes forever to just explain it than just seeing it. And I just think the part where he runs into the, the... When he's shot at by the German soldier... And Schofield ends up going into, like, this corner and finds a room where there's a French woman staying and there's a baby there. That was such a powerful scene. Another setback, uh, you can view it either as a setback or as a way to give him more momentum to get to the next stage. Um, I kind of saw it as a delay, but I saw it as a very meaningful part of the story in which you see a baby in any movie, like, even Children of Men, the minute you see a baby in a movie, that's when there's hope. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the symbol of hope. And I thought that was so powerful. Like, amidst all this war, amidst all this chaos and rubble and death and destruction and disease and pain and suffering, there's hope for a better future when you hear the crying of this kid. So, um, did you think that he would get attacked? Did you think that he was walking into something? Or did you think he was completely safe the second he came into contact with the French woman? Did you yeah, think I gonna- felt like he was safe almost immediately. There's a look that she gives him when she comes out from the shadows of like, I'm scared and wait, let me look at you. And then you're like, you're, you're not going to hurt me. And I knew that like immediately in that moment that he had found a, a uh, an escape for a moment. Um and then you also kind of tap in more to he, him being the non-emotional one, but in in realizing, oh, if I give her this milk, I could help save this life, um, which he's trying to save 1,600 more, and we don't know if he'll make it, but at least he saved a baby for the time being. Right. Yeah. And then he leaves, and we find out that it's morning. That's when we mm-hmm. finally figure out the time. So it goes from and daytime re- to night. To morning within the matter of like we don't even know but this is all happening in real time and just the epic scene where he's being chased away and he jumps into the river and now we're nearing the end and and that that scene 
um, another setback, mm-hmm. right? Another another obstacle uh, to get where he needs to be is when he's in the the river and the river is like just washing him down. And I'm like, wow, this is washing away all of the like dirt, the destruction, the pain. But is he going to drown or is he going to survive? And I was like, if he came this far just to drown, I'm going to lose my mind and walk out of the theater right now. <laughs> Luckily, uh, he didn't. He found the people he was looking for. He did. And, and he had to, like, jump over or, like, climb over, what, like, over a dozen dead bodies at the base of the river. Just such a grotesque scene just to get where he needs to go. And then the music guides him. Such a theatrical mm-hmm. performance of... Uh, the song I'm coming home just guiding him and then finally he's like I need to get here where is it and the group of men are like we are them we'll take you there and finally you're like yes he's there everything's resolved and then you have one last setback once he's finally there in the trenches nobody is listening to him because he is but a soldier he is a pawn in this larger game of death and destruction and um, he's already in the trenches, but every single person who's not helping him reach Colonel McKenzie is an obstacle to his mission. And it's so frustrating to know that Colonel McKenzie is literally right there and there is nothing he can do about it. And so we're just sitting there waiting. How is he going to get this message across? Did you, was there any doubt in your mind that he wouldn't get the message across? Like, was there any, like, okay, he came this far, and now he's gone? How disappointing would that be to the audience, you know? You have a two-hour film, the last ten minutes, you're like, eh. I mean, yeah. I'm just going to kill him now. Yeah. I I had a feeling that he would get there, and it would be it would be difficult. That he might, like, lose something, or a lot of people would die and he would have to live with the fact that like he didn't make it in time i always had an instinct that he would make it but i just didn't know if it if he which he kind of didn't really make it in full time because they did already go out with the first wave um but i think just seeing him try to find this one last person who's literally maybe i don't know not very far from him and have to go through the turn through the trenches like he did in the beginning when he was back with Blake, that it's sort of like, here we go again. Like, we had to fight people to get out to get this mission done, and now we have to fight people just to get to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just constantly, yeah, fighting people to get out of his way because everyone's like, we don't know. You're just a single dude here. Like, we don't know what your mission is. Nobody does. They're just like, who is this guy going wacko in the trenches asking for Mackenzie? Like, I don't know. He's over there. Like, we're about to go to war here like what are you doing mm-hmm. um so i could understand how i would blow him off too be like i don't know this guy's nuts he's uh, go over there like we're about to go into battle dude right um and he almost did get blown off yeah <laughs> literally blown off mm-hmm. too not just figuratively he climbs up the trenches goes where the battle is and everyone's like are you crazy what are you doing and he goes and he is running in opposition. He's running this way. The soldiers are running this way. They're literally colliding at some points. 
this wasn't planned, by the way. This was not planned. This right. was completely improvised for him to fall over yeah. when someone, you know, ran into him. But this was such an insane, powerful scene. This is why I love cinema. Just, like, this dramatic finale. And you're just like, he's going to make it. He's going to push through. Run, Forrest, run. Do this. Yeah. And then he finally gets to the other side. And you're like, finally, he's here. Colonel McKenzie is here. He's going to get the message. And still, at the base of the door... At the entrance of the front door, they're like, get out of here, kid. And they're like moving him. And he's like, no, I need to get this message across. Finally gets in, needs to talk to Colonel McKenzie. And Colonel McKenzie still ignores him. At this point, I'm just, I'm done. I'm like, are you joking? This is too much. Just give us the satisfaction of delivering the message. And then finally, he says, here's the letter. Read the letter. The Germans are planning an attack. And finally, once he has that evidence of having a letter from someone who is higher up than Colonel McKenzie, Colonel McKenzie finally pays attention, and that just goes to show the chain of command in the military and how nobody questions orders, and you only listen to those above you, which is so frustrating, but it's the one way of keeping order in an otherwise chaotic, you know, landscape. So you're finally like, okay, all of that just for this moment, and for him to not even really be congratulated except by one of the guys who's like, good job, kid. And then the other, and then Colonel McKenzie, played by uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, is like, okay, F off. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? Tara, help me out here. Yeah. I <laughs> what mean, is going on? I think it's more like, well, I got work to do now, buddy. You just gave me this, like, letter that changes my whole entire battle plan that I'd probably been planning for the last week. Mm-hmm. And now you charge in with some letter and orders that, like, what am I going to do now? Because there's probably, like, half of his people are dead. How do you stop it in the middle of, like, an attack, which you can send them down the line and say, like, you know, hold back or whatever, and hopefully only lose half of your people. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's sort of like, great, I don't have time to congratulate you. You gotta get out of my way, and now I have to, like, find a way to stop all of us from dying, because we thought we were in the right. I mean, they thought they had the right knowledge to go and attack and go to battle. Right. Um... So, yeah, it's it's kind of scary, but I understand why he was just like, cool, great, you can go away now. Like, you did your job. Um, I don't know what else they could have really done for him because they're in the middle of war, and it's just like the one guy, though, was very uh, kind to him who said, like, go get some food or I'll show you where the food's at or something, and, like, we'll get yeah. you to medical and get you some food because I – that's all we can do right now. We're fighting. So let's just take care of the kid who made it mm-hmm. um, as best they can. Right. And, uh, would yeah. You, would you say it was a successful mission? Because this is the thing that I thought was a no-brainer until I had a discussion with my dad about it, who really understands the ins and outs of military strategy. And he's like, no, it wasn't a successful mission. And I went back and forth for an hour last night saying it was a successful mission. He got there. There were unforeseen circumstances that prevented him from getting there right in time. But he did prevent, you know, the second wave from getting killed. But I kept wondering, okay, there's 1,600 men. There's the first wave and the second wave. Assuming that it's divided equally, there's 800 in the first wave, 800 in the second wave. Assuming that it's equal, Mm -hmm. but not all 800 of the first wave went out. You see, like, some of them going out, the rest are in trenches, so you don't know how many have actually gone out. And I wonder if he was even 
able, if they were even able to prevent the first wave from getting killed, from getting annihilated, or if they were able to prevent half of the first wave. And it's really unclear what happened. So my question to you was, was the mission successful? Yeah, because if you can save one life, then you've, I mean, you've at least sort of done your job in regards to his brotherhood with Blake. Because I think, really, he Blake would have been like, it doesn't matter. I mean, just like, he saved one person who was his enemy, mm-hmm. and now Schofield did his job in regards to probably at least saving hundreds of lives. Not all 1,600. We get that, but you got there in time to save the second wave from not going out. Still, people died, but that's sort of the price of war, of like, there's no cell phones unfortunately and like rough living over here and people are going to die but at least a big bulk of them are not going to specifically because of Schofield surviving and getting that letter into the right hands with everything that came before yeah that yeah the it was worth it for him to survive um I think when he goes to sit down at the tree afterwards you can see the exhaustion in him and sort of finding hope that maybe he didn't make it totally in time, but I think he feels proud at least making it that far. Um, and I, uh, that was a nice moment for me to see mm-hmm. um, that I think he, he realized like, oh, okay, I did it. And then had a moment to sort of register all the stuff he just went through in the last, I don't know, 16, 18 hours. Um, because it's a lot. Yeah. So much. Uh, I don't even know. That was like two hours. Mm-hmm. A little more than two hours, depending on how long he was knocked out for. But two hours of actual real-time walking action. Like, if that's just two hours, and that's two hours of an entire day, what are you doing, like, the rest of the four years? Like, the war started in 1914, ended in 1918, this movie takes place in April of 1917. There's still another year left of war. It just shows that there's no finality to this. It's that this is like the one thing that's been concluded, but it's still not concluded. There's no happy bow that you tie on it. You know, there's death, there's destruction, but hey, here's some benefit. Like, I did what I could. I saved some people. Obviously, I can't do everything. And it just kind of shows, like, war is pointless. That's what I got out of this film. Mm-hmm. Um Ugh, this was frustrating, though, <laughs> especially when he sees uh, Blake's brother and delivers the message to him. That scene was heartbreaking, almost as heartbreaking as the death scene, just to see him go from a smile to a sadness immediately. Um, such a crazy transition in facial expressions, and I just was, like, sucked into that performance as well. Yeah, he did a great um, job. Any, like, final thoughts about, you know the obstacles of getting from point A to point B before we move on to the production, the cinematography. No, I say let's do it. All right, let's do it. Um, You know, obviously the the other things that I want to mention really quickly, uh, other than the themes of the futility of war, was that there were like interesting motifs, like the motifs of the cherries. Still, I'm a little confused as to like what it meant um, because I feel like there are a lot of hidden meanings with that. And I feel like if I do a little bit more research, I might be able to find out what did you think about the cherry motif? Well, in the beginning, weren't there no cherries? There were there were no blooming yeah. in the beginning, and they um, cut them I think all down. Showfield didn't know what they were, and Blake told a story explaining it to him. Yeah, and then Blake dies, and then he goes and he sees cherries actually blooming, mm-hmm. and so I think that that was just a, a nice like thing that oh, Showfield will probably always 
um, think of Blake when he sees like cherries blooming, which is a, a beautiful like sort of metaphor in regards to like you know stuff still goes on, life still goes on in mm-hmm. different ways. Um, that's maybe how I interpreted it. I like that. Yeah, I do like that. And then um, also the symbols of hope. I would say the the, the one cow that was alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> the symbol of hope, and the baby symbols of death. Literally everything else: uh, the dead dog, fat rat, dead bodies, dead cherries. Uh, literally everything else. Um, but yeah, let's get into the cast now. Um, you know, obviously we have Dean Charles Chapman as Lance Corporal Blake. He's the one who dies halfway through the movie. Um, we have George McKay as Lance Corporal Schofield. Um, I know you have some things you want to say about his performance. Oh, I mean, yeah, he he's he's phenomenal. But I also was super distracted in the beginning when I was watching this movie because I was I was looking at Dean Charles Chapman being like, why do I know him? And then it was 10 minutes later. I was like, Game of Thrones. Like, I, it was such a release for me to be like, that's where I know him from. Yeah. Um, but I, I had not recognized or seen, I don't think, George McKay in anything else. Um, and I think he just delivered such a good performance. I really yeah. believed him in all of it, in, like, his exhaustion, but also being scared and then also being, like, emotionless but also he- heartfelt at the same time. I thought it was really, really great. Um, and, uh, I think that just has a lot to do with, um, the casting and them choosing actors that are like, you're going to have to go through four months of rehearsals they did, which is insane. Nobody ever does that much rehearsing for a specific film, but in order to get the shots done, you have to. And, um, so it, I'm sure that it was, uh, such a rigmarole for both of them to be rehearsing that much and run over the scenes over and over. Um, and I think he did, you know, I, everybody did a fantastic job. Colin Firth was great at the top and Benedict Cumberbatch is like always awesome. Mm-hmm. Also, Scott is his last name. Um, I'm forgetting, but he's in Fleabag. He plays the priest in Fleabag. If you haven't seen it, that's a great show. But I loved when he popped up in the beginning too. Yes. Uh, he is so believable yeah. and such a great actor um, that uh, everyone that you run into, I'm like, um, yeah, totally believe him. Yeah. They were great. I felt the same way. And also, uh, Tom Holland was actually supposed to play the role of Corporal Blake. Mm. Uh, That would have been really interesting, but due to scheduling conflicts, he couldn't. I I think it might have been a blessing in disguise because Tom Holland is so recognizable, especially because of his role in Spider-Man, that I feel like maybe it's a good thing that these two leading men were kind of unrecognizable because you don't want, like, a Matt Damon or someone... (laughs) that you recognize in a movie like this because it takes you out of it and you think about the star power and I think that's what's so great and I love how the the actors that have such crazy star power were the ones in the roles that were only on screen for like less than a minute that yeah. was great and it kind of goes to show like that these actors were willing to do this film because they knew it was going to be a great movie I love yeah. that love that part of it um uh, but but yeah, this was overall love this movie. Um, it was shot. Um, I'll just go through like directed by Sam Mendes or Mendez. I never know how you say his yeah. name. Everyone like I've been 
looking into it, Sam Mendes, which is a weird way okay. to pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I love him, but Roger Deakins was really the one that, like, he brought a lot of this to life because I was wondering who shot it and who thinks up, like, um, that they had to use the camera. They would had to, to um, put it on, like, a stabilizer, and then also somebody would ride a motorcycle, and they would have to run with the camera, especially for the last scene, attach it while moving onto a dolly crane while the mm-hmm. car is moving. And then those guys had to be dressed up as soldiers so they could clear frame. Like, all of that is bonkers crazy to me. But um, Roger Deakins, he actually did Blade Runner 2049 um, and Skyfall, but I did not know that Roger Deakins also did Fargo, which is one of my most favorite movies Oh, that movie is so good. And now I'm like, oh, that's probably a huge reason why um, that movie was so fantastic. Mm Because when you get a good DP who knows how to, like, tell a story visually and you have a great director with just who chooses actors they can just trust and let them go, Mm -hmm. um, mm, there's, like, nothing that can stop you from making, like, a great film. All of his stuff is great. No Country for Old Men. You don't look at his IMDb and go, like, I didn't like it. You look at their, uh, and Sam's too, their IMDb, and you're like, uh, yeah, they know what they're doing. Yeah. It's a craft, and they've got it down. They even have a weather app that they use to make sure that when they're filming that there will be cloudy skies. And that is such a tough thing to do because you have to make sure that there is continuity in all of your shots. Because keep in mind, it's not just one single shot. It's made to look like that, but obviously... The editing is so great that you don't really notice the cuts in between unless you're really, really trying to pay attention to where they made the cut. Um, So for them to be at the mercy of weather conditions just to shoot this kind of takes you back to Steven Spielberg when he was making Jaws and he would say, oh, we can't shoot on this day because there's no blue skies and we need blue skies for this scene or else there won't be continuity. That is such a hard feat when you're paying actors and you're paying the director and you're paying all these people below the line, above the line to make a movie come to life. And then you have to totally scrap one of the days and reschedule because of, you know, the unforeseen weather conditions. Right. So that that was huge. Like that wasn't done through like, you know, editing or coloration. That's just like looking at the cloudy skies and like you need that yeah they'd have to shut down production but also they made which i did not know so the scene that takes place with like the the um the town on fire Mm -hmm. um they have to recreate you know flares going into the sky and that's what leads to those beautiful shadows yeah um they actually made many models of every set and then used a little light to go over the that town in a way that a flare so they had to time out a flare time out the mini light on the mini model and how um, quick it would go and how long it would last Mm -hmm. to see where the shadows would move to time up the shots which I'm just like that's how they did it because if you watch that scene you're like when it opens up and you just start to see the light moving and the shadows moving you're like is this real and then you're like oh it's real like that's actual just the lighting it's so beautiful if just if you don't even want to watch this film just look that (laughs) scene up because it is a phenomenal piece of cinematography and the amount of work they had to do and prep just to get that shot exactly right to to continue to follow the actor so he lands in a spot where the shadows are like not moving or just about to send off a flare the timing and all of that to make that full long shot happen i cannot i'm not even kidding i will literally watch this movie on mute because it's so visually stunning but even if i didn't watch it on mute and i watched it blindfolded where i could just hear it 
the soundtrack, the the Amazing. score, incredible. It really helps move the plot forward. Like you have not just the men singing in the forest, but the actual score of the film of just like the suspenseful music and you know obviously the score um thomas newman so great yeah thomas newman um this movie is nominated for best original score uh it's just it's unreal how many nominations this has so i'm gonna i'm gonna read off the 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 oscar nominations for you uh this movie is being nominated for best picture best director best cinematography best original music score by thomas newman best original screenplay best visual effects best production design best sound mixing best sound editing best makeup and hairstyling yeah holy they deserve like a lot of those it's insane (laughs) and it's like i'm not surprised but it also won best director best editor and best in cinematography for the critics choice movie award it got the satellite award for best cinematography um the best theatrical motion picture award uh for the from the producers guild of america um and then obviously most recently you know we had the golden globes huge deal in hollywood and for that it won best motion picture drama as well as best director so I'm not going to be surprised if 1917 kind of sweeps the Oscars this year. I wouldn't be surprised um, either. Especially in the visual department. Insanity. Um, yeah. And the box office, I just want to cover that real quick. So uh, this was a $90 million budget. And uh, they've already made $149 million worldwide. So domestically, they've made 86 so they haven't cleared it domestically. But worldwide, 149, meaning uh, you made your budget, baby. Yeah. Uh, when you make double, which they're they'll make double, especially after they win all the Oscars. Um, to make that money up that rapidly is insane, and they totally deserve it. Um, when you go into like quite a feat of it's 90 million, and we have to shut down production on days when it's sunny, meaning the whole day we have four months of rehearsals mm-hmm. with extras and actors and the camera. We got to build mini models and there's like visual effect i mean all of that is just such a huge feat in filmmaking like that is it's just a true work of art and i think it's great that they're gonna make all their money back because they totally (laughs) deserve it they really do deserve it i mean uh, the thing that i found most interesting and we are going to start to wrap uh very soon uh is that on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes, it got the same rating from the audience and from the critics, and that's pretty rare. Usually you have one loving it more than the other, but in this case, 89% from both critics and audiences alike. Uh, it's very surprising to have a movie that's kind of like an Oscar contender that audiences can enjoy as well, especially when it's a war epic, especially something like 1917 where we're so far removed from World War One. There's no living soldier from World War One that can tell the story right now. Um, it's insane that we can all like go to this movie and for the most part be like, wow, even if you didn't like the story, there's something to like for everyone. There's the score, there's the production design, cinematography. And I would argue that even for the editing, most of this editing in this film happens in pre-production, not in post-production. You're literally editing the pieces together before the movie even happens, which is such a crazy feat to be like, this is where we're going to go and this is where the camera is going to be and this is how we're going to do that. Because normally that's where you're making the cuts and posts, but this is almost like flipped on the other end where you're doing all of that before the movie is even in production. I think that's phenomenal. Um, in terms of sequel and legacy, uh, 
I don't think there are a lot of there's not a lot of World War One movies uh, with that like this I mean there yeah. really aren't any World War One movies at all so I think that it's great that we're we're getting this story told and we're revisiting this um final thoughts Tara before we leave this movie would not be what it is without the cinematography and doing what they did with the one shot. It's phenomenal. It's a work of art. Um, even if you're not engaged in the story, just look at like how it's made. And I, I just, I guarantee you'll get wrapped up in it. And uh, let's all go watch more Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins films because I'm totally into it. I am on board with that. Uh, I saw this twice, loved it the second time even more. Uh, I think there's so many things to admire about this film, uh, more than the storytelling, of course, the cinematography, the production, and just being on the edge of your seat in a movie where you're just in awe of what's happening. The performances really blew me away. Loved it. I know this is going to win a bunch of Oscars in February, so... uh, Make sure to follow Tara Erickson yeah, on guys. Instagram and Twitter. Where can they find you? You guys can find me on Instagram at Tara Erickson on Twitter at the Tara Erickson. Also on YouTube, just search my name and IMDb, guys. And I'm your host, Mina Nadeen. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mina Makes Magic. And tune in to us next week at noon. Uh, we're going to be covering another movie. Bye. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network.